Hello, lovelies. Welcome to the Fat Joy Podcast, where we talk each week about how to flourish in an anti-fat world. I'm Sophia, a fat person and professional coach who loves talking to other fat people about what it's like to live within oppressive systems that marginalize our bodies and how we still dare to have the audacity and courage to reach towards our collective liberation and embrace our joy. Please know this is an adult content podcast, so there will be swears. We will be talking about harms we've experienced, and we will be rebelling against diet culture, anti-fatness, ableism, racism, etc. If you'd like to support the Fat Joy podcast and get bonus content as a thank you, please check us out at patreon.com slash fatjoy. I am so glad you're here with us. Enjoy. Hello, lovelies. Welcome back to the Fat Joy podcast. I am deeply, deeply excited to be joined by someone who I've been following for a long time, Virginia Soul Smith. Welcome, Virginia. Thank you for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. Yay. I was trying to remember back when I even heard about you and the work that you've done, and I realized you've just, I think, always been in my ethos. You're one of those, <laughs> like, you know, actually, um, another guest coined shared the term. I don't know if she coined the term, but it was the first time I'd heard it, but this idea of fat elders. And so I think you've been one of my fat elders for a long time because I was like, I don't remember when I first heard about you. I've just kind of like always known about your work. That is a huge honor. I feel like I have so many fat elders. I would not dare to put myself in that category. Oh, you're a huge compliment. You are totally a self (laughs) fat elder. Thank you. Um, so Virginia, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Let's sure. start there. So I'm Virginia Soul Smith. I am an author and journalist. I write the Burnt Toast newsletter and host the Burnt Toast podcast. Um, my first book, which came out about four years ago, was called The Eating Instinct, Food Culture, Body Image, and Guilt in America. And my next book, which is coming out in April, is called Fat Talk, Parenting in the Age of Diet Culture. So I as those titles suggest, write a lot about diet culture, anti-fat bias, particularly through a parenting lens. Um, I came to this work in a somewhat convoluted way. I started my career in women's magazines and spent a good decade causing a lot of harm, writing a lot of diet stories and, you know, the kind of it's not a diet, but stories and, you know, working my way through a lot of things. And it was about almost a decade ago when my first daughter was born that I started to really uh, reckon with that in a real way and realize that that wasn't work I wanted to be putting out into the world, that it wasn't, you know, helpful to my relationship with my body. It wasn't what I wanted my kids to learn, you know, and started to really dive into, I mean, first intuitive eating and health at every size, which I think are a lot of people's sort of gateways into this work, and then progressing beyond that more into fat liberation and fat justice and just kind of kept going. So yeah, that's me. That's amazing. Yeah, I. it's very interesting to think about previous iterations of ourselves before we found fat liberation. <laughs> um, I think about that a lot. I used to use the words curvilicious and I'm oh, coach, yes. curvilicious ladies. <laughs> and I just, oh my God, it's so embarrassing now. But at the time, yeah, yeah. You know. And it's, well, it's just so hard to be a person with a body 
and to find ways to, you know, we're all just finding ways to exist in the bodies that we and feel safe yeah. in our bodies. And yeah. unfortunately, a lot of the time that means being complicit and stuff, even without realizing what you're complicit in, because that's a survival strategy. So, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, let's kind of start maybe towards the beginning, <laughs> wherever you want the beginning to be. But I'm so curious about how your relationship to the word fat has evolved. Well, you know, I was a thin kid um, who had several close friends who were fat, but, you know, come from a thin family for the most part. Um, I didn't really associate it. You know, I didn't really think about it for a long time, except I did have these experiences of seeing close friends of mine treated really badly for their weight or they were worrying about their weight. And I had this sort of free pass as a skinny girl who it was fine that I didn't like sports because nobody needed me to like sports because nobody needed me to lose weight, you know? And so I had this privilege of that. And it's not to say I wasn't uncomfortable in my body. I mean, I was a kid and then a teenager in the 90s, like great time to be uncomfortable in your body. Um, <laughs> you know, definitely had some stuff, but it never felt like a personal issue. It felt like this sort of, you know, I felt like I was being the good friend by being like, you're not fat, you're beautiful. And like, you don't need to diet and like saying crap like that. That now I'm like, oh God, no, <laughs> it was not there. So, it, you know, it felt very distant to me for most of the time I was growing up. And then my body started to change in college. And then throughout my 20s, I was in a pretty disordered relationship with exercise, like sort of fighting to maintain thinness, but that was not what my adult body wanted to be. Um, and so then I did have this deep fear of fatness, but I also identified as a feminist. And so I was uncomfortable with how much I was uncomfortable with fatness, you know? So I was like in this other weird place of like sort of secretly dieting, but not wanting to call it dieting. Can you say a little more? Actually, that's really interesting, this connection between feminism and anti-fatness. What was the discomfort for you? What was the tension? You know, I came of age reading like Naomi Wolf and the Beauty Myth, who she is now a very problematic person. But in the 90s, the Beauty Myth was a pretty mind-blowing work for a lot of us, where it helped me understand this idea of beauty culture and patriarchy and that women's, you know, women are constantly being objectified for our bodies and so I had this sense of wanting to dismantle that, wanting to dismantle the idea that women's bodies existed for men's pleasure or that we are objects, but I hadn't connected that to fat acceptance or fat liberation in any way. So I had this idea of this is something I work on for all women, but of course, like if I were fat, I would still change. You know, it was like I was like this loophole that didn't, that doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense but I think is very common in feminism, particularly white feminism, um, where, you know, you can have it all and do it all and be it all if you can also be thin, you know, there's that whole tension. And so part of why I went into women's magazines was this really conscious feminist choice of these, this is where, where we can talk to lots of women. This is where these conversations happen at that point in time, and even now today, like mainstream media outlets did not want to cover women's health issues. You know, these were not stories that men cared about or thought were important. We're in the early 2000s now, just to situate everyone. Mm -hmm. And so it felt like this is where I can do this work and I can challenge this idea of like these artificial beauty standards and the thin ideal. But again, it was like, I can challenge it as long as I can stay thin as well. You know, it was still trapped within the paradigm. 
and not understanding that I was only, like, I was trying to liberate us, but only so far. Um, Yes. Yeah, and I think it just speaks to how much anti-fat bias, you know, is just, it's baked into everything. And, you know, and I see a version of this today where I think a lot of people who I know who identify as progressives or liberals politically will still be incredibly anti-fat, right? And they're doing all this work on their racism and they're doing all this work on gender norms, but fatness is still this totally acceptable place to put all of your hate. And so that I think is, you know, just this ongoing challenge we have of getting anti-fat bias recognized and named. And so certainly earlier in my career, when I was writing about, the, about yeah, how to have your best bikini body, I was not there. <laughs> I was not there. Yes, um, yes. But then, as I said, you know, there was this personal turning point for me, which I, you know, I also don't feel great about. Like, I don't love that I was like, well, it had to happen to me for me to understand it. Like, that's kind of terrible, but it is so human. Yes, yes. And yeah, these experiences of becoming a mom, going through some pretty intense stuff. Our older daughter um, had a lot of medical experiences as a baby till about age three. She was on a feeding tube for a long time. So that really forced me to start doing a lot of work on my relationship to food because I had to make eating feel safe to this little baby and then a toddler who didn't feel safe around food. And I realized most of us don't feel safe around food. And what is that going to, you know, how I have to model joy in food in a way that I can't do if I'm cutting carbs, this is not going to work. So that was a huge shift. And then the shift that happened along with that, along with making peace with food and all of that was that I, you know, am in my adult body, which is a small fat body. And so that shift of realizing, you know, I can choose to keep pursuing thinness with restriction and excessive exercise, or I can choose my daughters and I can choose myself and I can choose our life. And in order to have those things, I'm going to be fat. I mean, what? that's not even a bad deal. Like, it's not even a, what's, where's the downside, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Other than, yeah, so now I'm fat in a fat phobic society, which is occasionally extremely hard, but I don't mean to downplay that. But like, obviously it was the choice was clear. Um, And so then that brought me more fully into, but I'm still very mindful of, you know, I am someone who is multiply privileged in a lot of different ways. And even when we talk about fatness, I think at this point, when I feel tentative to claim that as an identity, it's out of respect for the fact that there are people fatter than me who experience anti-fat bias in much more profound ways. And my story is not the one we need to center. Right, right. Oh, Beautiful. Everything you just said is incredible, Virginia. And the the word safety has come up a few times, and I'm really interested in that because I feel like, and I'm so curious to see what you think about this, but safety around food, safety around body, feeling safe in our environment, safety with exercise, like safety around family and friends, you know, mm-hmm. safety is such a big part of this work. And I'm really curious about how that desire for safety tied into this book that you wrote because like you said with your daughter how do I make my daughter feel safe around mm-hmm. food if I don't like what a question to have to reckon with yeah yeah I yeah I'm so what are your thoughts uh, around safety here 
I think that nothing about our bodies, whether we're talking about relationship with food, relationship with movement, just being able to move and exist in your body, nothing happens, nothing works if you don't feel safe. Mm. I mean, that's what we saw very profoundly. You know, my daughter stopped eating by mouth, even though she physically could do it because she had these traumatic experiences in the mm. hospital and eating didn't feel safe. Things going in her mouth didn't feel safe. I mean, when you've had, ton you're a baby and you've had a ton of tubes going down your throat, you're like, nope, not here for that. <laughs> you know, you're protecting, it's like this really primal visceral thing of like, I'm protecting breathing, I'm protecting myself, and this all needs to go away. And so, you know, obviously it was like a logical choice, but, you know, we needed her to heal from that trauma and eat again. Um, I mean, lots of people live full lives on feeding tubes, but, you know, it was the healing needed to happen in one way or another. Um, but I just realized, you know, I saw again and again in that experience, whenever she didn't feel safe and she didn't feel comfortable in her body, eating would stop again. Like, she couldn't do it. Mm -hmm. And to watch a, a baby and a toddler work through that, where it's just very, I don't want to say simple, but it's, you know, she's not absorbing larger cultural messages at that point. It's like this very, like, this doesn't feel safe. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to fake it for you. I'm not, you know, like, it's just very straightforward. So clear what's yeah, going on. Yeah, it was so clear what was happening. It was like, if we can make her feel safe and comfortable, it's going to work. And when I started to think more deeply about how we relate to food in our bodies, you know, in a broader sense. So the first book was talking to lots of people about this concept of safety with food and bodies and realizing all the different ways we don't feel safe and how early that starts for most people. And, you know, to the point that people will feel like they never have felt safe when, you know, I would hope everyone as an infant has some, at least some experience of this, but, yeah. you know, eating doesn't work when it doesn't feel safe to you. Um, and that can, and the doesn't work can look like lots of different things and the, do, and doesn't feel safe can look like lots of different things, but that's the sort of core principle that's really guided my work since then of how do we build safety? And so, you know, with the new book, um, which is a, you know, a book for parents and for really anyone who works with kids, um, about understanding anti-fat bias, again, it comes back to safety because, kids and fat bodies aren't safe in this country. You know, they're just not. They're going to encounter bullying. They're going to encounter cruelty in so many different ways, both overt and very subtle. And we as parents need to make home the safe space. We need to, you know, we cannot change the larger world. We can work on it. This is definitely work we all need to be doing. But the thing we can control is what does our kid get from us about their body? What message do they get from us? And that needs to be unconditional support. So, you know, figuring out how to work through your own biases in order to provide that safety to your kid is incredibly difficult. <laughs> it is incredibly complicated. Um, but it's, you know, I think some of the most profound work we can all be doing. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I just keep thinking about how many of us would feel very differently about our bodies now if we had gotten this when we were kids. Yeah. Um, and the significance of doing this work to pass on to kids now. Oh, I mean, it can, it will change the generation. Yeah. It will change yeah. diet culture. 
I I want to read, I grabbed the blurb about your books. I just thought it was so beautiful. So I just, so it's called Fat Talk, Parenting in the Age of Diet Culture. And the little blurb is, Fat Talk is a book for parents about how to name and navigate, I love the alliteration, by the way, name and navigate anti-fat bias when it shows up at our dinner table, at the pediatrician's office, in our kids' classrooms, and everywhere else in our family life. I think it's also a book for teachers, coaches, pediatricians, and anyone else who works with kids, and a book for anyone who needs to reparent themselves around food and body stuff. And actually, that was from your your burnt toast um, mm-hmm. Substack newsletter. And I just thought, oh, that's the perfect blurb for this, because what you're saying is this is for everybody. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that's not just a marketing strategy. I think everybody is harmed by anti-fat bias in some way. I mean, I think, obviously, again, as we talked about, like there's a spectrum and peop- the bigger you are, the more you're harmed. Mm-hmm. But even thin kids, I would argue, are harmed by this bias because it teaches them that their thinness is the most valuable thing about them. And not every thin kid's going to grow up to be a thin adult. And how do you reckon with that when your body changes, you know? So no matter who you're parenting or who, what children are in your life or not in your life, figuring out how to create this sense of safety is really fundamental because, I mean, everybody's body is going to change. That's a given, right? Yeah, absolutely. So, I have two stepchildren, 11, they are now 11 and 14. When I met them, they were eight and 11. And oh, did <laughs> I remember those <laughs> first dinners where I was just constantly shocked by the food commenting that came out mm. of their bodies. Everything they ate, they looked at the nutrition Wow. Um, information to see how much, how many grams of sugar were in it. Oh, Every, wow. And I just remember sitting, you know, because we, we all moved in together. So now we're doing these dinners and I'm just like, what is happening? And I was super triggered because I have binge eating disorder that I'm, I manage and, you know, I, I'm, you know, I've gone through recovery, but like, to suddenly and very unexpectedly have to face this again every dinner. So my bias, my rage at my partner <laughs> for being like, how do you allow this? But he, again, he didn't know, mm-hmm. hadn't been mm-hmm. experienced with it. And then, of course, rage at their mother uh, for, um, you know, this is where the behavior stems from. And just this obsession they had with food and nutrition and can I have this? And, oh, but I'm still hungry, but no, I shouldn't. And all, all of these things at eight years old. So, yeah. And yeah. I was, I just, I really, it took me probably a year to um, reckon with everything that was being experienced around this dinner table so that I wasn't, and and so my partner and I, we strategized. I was like, okay, so I need you to know, this is what I'm seeing. This is not okay. This is literally leads to the type of people that I work with as adults that end up with eating disorders and disordered eating. And like this, there's, this is just, I can see, I can see down this runway and we got to nip this in the bud, at least in our house, which is where our locus of control is. Mm -hmm. We can't do anything about anywhere else, but we can do something here. And so we made simple strategies like no more looking at food labels, not not saying no more looking at food labels, but saying, okay, well, you know, you're looking at the grams of sugar. What does that mean to you? What does that tell you? Mm. Oh, I don't know. I just know I should look at them. I'm like, okay. And and what information does it give you? Oh, well, if it's high, it's got lots of sugar. I'm like, okay. And, And so what does that mean? oh, well, I probably shouldn't have too much of it. Okay, but 
Is that true? And so just get, trying to get them to question why they were doing these things. Yes. Um, and then really inviting them to follow their body cues. So there were all these little strategies that we did. And I will very happily say that th- we've been living together three and a half years now. And there is no more of that around Yay. the dinner table. Yay. Oh, that's awesome. But it was it was really hard to sure. create because, you know, talking about safety, I suddenly felt unsafe in my own like around my own dining table yeah, and just filled with rage at the same time, which is not good. That's not an energy a stepmom wants to bring to a table. No nope, rage. Nope. Um, so, nope. <laughs> so let's, I'm so curious what strategies do, well, let's not go to strategies yet. I'm so curious. Let's like, just go a level deeper. So this is about how we even talk to kids about anti-fat bias and naming it. What, Oh, say more a little bit about that. Like, how do we do that? What do we say? What are we trying to go for? Like, what's the objective? Because they are getting so much crap. I mean, I hear several times a week about the latest, you know, you know, and I've mentioned this before on the podcast because it sticks out so well where, you know, my stepson says, Sophia, did you know the rocks cheat day? He gets to eat 13 pancakes and, 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 and he, my 11-year-old stepson knows the food that yeah. The Rock, Dwayne The Rock Johnson, come on, buddy, um, eats on his cheat day, and he's idolizing it. Yeah. Oh, man, do better, The Rock. Right, do better, The do Rock. Do better. Dude. Yeah. <laughs> Don't share that with us. Yeah, I mean, I think the goal is, I think what we often want the goal to be is to protect our kids from all of this. And I think we have to recognize that that is not possible. Oh, okay. Um, I know. It's a huge bummer. It's a huge bummer. bummer. (laughs) It's not. And I'll tell you when I realized it was not possible was when my older daughter was about three and she became obsessed with Peppa Pig, the cartoon about the pig. And it is full of fat shaming. They are absolutely awful about Daddy Pig. And I was like, well, if you can't even keep it out of a cartoon that is literally designed for like 18-month-olds to watch, then like, okay, like this is, it's going to be everywhere. And so instead, I think it's exactly what you were doing with your kids, like starting to ask questions and help them develop the critical thinking skills they need to navigate this, to mm-hmm. arm them with with this. And so I think that looks a couple of different ways. I mean, I spend a lot of time in the book um, go, looking backwards and really exploring the entire, and I'll put this in quotes, war on obesity and war on childhood obesity, like these 40-year public health missions that we've been on that are, frankly, suicide missions, like that have not worked, that have not made us healthier. And they're based on false data. Based on false data. Yes, yes. So we unpick all of that. I mean, the first three chapters of the book are just really unpicking all of, you know, what do we understand about weight and health? How do these things relate? How do they not relate? Um, you know, calling Michelle Obama as much as I otherwise love her to the mat for uh, some of this. And, you know, just looking at the ways that these messages have become so embedded in our culture, in institutions that we should be able to trust and rely on, and we can't. And so understanding that larger framework is a big piece of it. And then the rest of the book, I'm going through those different places where this bias is going to show up. So schools, yes. pediatricians' offices, um, sports is a huge one, unfortunately. Yeah. Uh, social media, you know, all these different arenas. And talking about what the bias looks like when it's manifesting there, 
showing the harm it causes on kids. There's a lot of stories from parents in the book and kids, too. I interviewed, um, I don't know, around 50 kids and more parents about all of these experiences. And so then looking at, okay, well, what works? You know, what strategies can we pull out of this? So it is, though, I think there is this knee-jerk impulse to want to say, you know, I want to protect my kid from this. And a lot of the mail I get from readers is this. How do I make my mom stop saying this? How do I make my kid's teacher stop saying this? How do I get this out of my kid's school? You know, what do I do about Peppa Pig and all of this? We want to control everyone else so that it doesn't get to our kids. But you're saying, no, we start with ourselves and our kids. And you also have to recognize that that desire to cut things out is a diet culture mentality, right? Oh, hang on a second. (laughs) Like, if you think about it, your desire to do things perfectly and to have your child have this perfect experience of not being, you know, infiltrated by all this terribleness, like, that's not that different from if you were the mom who doesn't allow sugar. I was just going to say, I'm doing clean eating without even knowing. Yes, exactly. I mean, and I, no, and I say that with love, like I get it, but it's, but then I think it's helpful to be like, oh, right. I don't have to do it perfectly. I don't have to protect them from all of this and prevent them from being exposed to these things. That's the other guys. That's what they do. That's not what I do. What I do is like, yeah, the world is a messy, messed up place a lot of the time. And this is home's always going to be your safe space where you are loved but yeah, when you go out into the world, you're going to deal with this stuff. And let's talk about that. And how are you going to deal with it? Oh, that's such a great, that, even as you say that, I feel like, yes, that's exactly what I want. I want them to go into the world and feel equipped and eyes open mm-hmm. about what's going on and what they're experiencing so that they can make their own decisions. Basically, it's making them less influenceable, influenceable right. yeah. which is actually what the desire, that root desire of, I just want to block everyone out. That is about keeping them less influenced, but this is the better way to do it. Right. I'm so curious. I love how you mentioned all these different arenas where anti-fat bias shows up for kids. Can you go through a few of them and share what are the common ways they show up? So you mentioned like school. Yeah. So school is unfortunately a big one. Um, This can look like sort of stray comments that teachers might make about their own food and eating habits and bodies. You know, I definitely hear from parents who's had, you know, who hear a teacher tell her first grade class that she's not eating bread, you know, and like this sort of innocuous because and this isn't to shame teachers. This is how people, especially women, are conditioned to talk about food. We're conditioned to apologize for it and cut it out. So, you know, that's going to show up just in these sort of informal ways. We also know that in schools, particularly kids in larger bodies, are more likely to be victims of bullying. Weight-based bullying is the number one reason girls get bullied and number two for boys. So that's going to be happening in your school settings and also online, of course. Um, And then it's also, you know, it's built into the curriculums in school. A lot of schools weigh kids and calculate BMI every year about I think it's 26 states have that as a requirement. You can opt out. I strongly encourage. That is one where I'm like, yeah, be the bubble. Like, just tell your school that your kid's not getting on the scale. That's a fair line to draw in the sand and push back. But that happens. Health class curriculums are very, you know, anytime they teach nutrition, they're teaching nutrition from a weight loss perspective. That's how they, you know, that's the larger framing for the way nutrition is taught in schools. So 
ninth grade, it's really common to get an assignment to track everything you ate over the last week and then calculate the calories for it. And so we just literally teach kids how to diet is and grade them on it. Oh my God. It just, it's painful. Yes. Yeah. Zoe's in grade nine and she had to, uh, yeah, do one of these assignments and then had to like healthify everything she ate as if she had, again, we get into this dichotomy. Suddenly now there's good food, there's bad food, yeah. there's yeah. what's okay to eat, what's not okay. And oh, it's just, it's, it's painful. And it's so built in. It's like, can, how do you even, well, again, this is, I'm, it's so interesting. I'm going right back to how do I even opt out? And it's like, actually, no, why don't I just spend some time talking with my stepdaughter about this? Like, I definitely think there are scenarios where it's worth it to opt out. Like, I think it's worth it to opt out of the school weigh-ins. Yeah. And I think that's true whether you're raising a thin kid or a fat kid. I think the more kids who don't get on those scales, the more the schools will realize they should stop putting kids on scales. I think that's an opportunity for opting out and activism, right? Like, you yes. need to opt out, but you need to tell them why you're opting out. And why you don't think this is a safe assignment for anybody to be doing. And so there's that. But then, yeah, I mean, like the smaller things, like the comments a teacher might make or, you know, I can remember one of my kids coming home from preschool and being like, we can't eat cookies because they have sugar bugs. It's like, okay, I'm not going to Sugar bugs? Yes, which is a thing from dentists. The sugar bugs get on your teeth. And she's like, so cookies are bad. And I was like, all right, I'm not going to go into preschool and like talk to this like overworked preschool teacher about please don't call cookies like bad and sugar bugs. I'm just going to talk to my kid about that one, you know, and like help her remember that she loves cookies and they're fine to eat. So it is sort of like, you know, you have to take some stock of like, what is the harm, the potential for harm here is and is it? you know, just to my kid or is it to all the kids? Because if Mm -hmm. you're just pulling your kid out of something that's harmful to everyone, then you're not making it better. You're just helping your own, you know? So like thinking about that. Um, But I think there are a lot of opportunities for activism. And as kids get older, like by the time they're the ages of your stepkids, encouraging kids to take, you know, to take this on themselves. Like when they're in kindergarten, you're not going to be like, well, you go right back in and tell her to eat bread, you know? <laughs> but like, um, <laughs> well, hopefully by the time they're in sixth grade or whatever, they're raising these concepts with teachers. They're, you know, they're calling out fat phobia or they're noticing, you know, my nine-year-old, when she read the Harry Potter books a year or two ago, she was like, oh, mom, you're not going to like it. They've got Dudley on a diet here, you know, because the Harry Potter books are like just right. wonderful books, but rife with fat phobia. And so she was spotting it, though, right? So so one option would have been for me to be like, you're not going to read Harry Potter. It's really anti-fat and I can't let you read it. But that isn't helping her develop any skills. Her reading it and loving it, but having to reckon with, I love it, but there's this thing in it that's much more helpful. Yeah. Well, and yeah, how wonderful, I'm just realizing in this moment, how wonderful to teach kids the art of holding paradox. Yeah, exactly. I can love this and this can still be problematic and I can not have black and white thinking about that. I can hold both and then decide what I do from there. That's beautiful. Yeah. So schools for sure. You mentioned also um, sports. You said sports is a really problematic one also. Yeah, I mean, I think there is virtually no way for kids to participate in sports and not encounter diet culture and anti-fatness at some point in that experience. Um, I think this is, you know, it's present very quickly for fat kids. Uniforms may not come in their size. 
coaches don't pay attention to them in the same way. They're not picked for the teams. I mean, there's all that really obvious harm that pushes fat kids out from participating. And then when you, you know, you hear these stereotypes of like, oh, fat kids are lazy. It's like, well, are they lazy or are they not included? Like, are they not welcome? You know, like, (laughs) is no one making space for them? So there's that piece of it. And then even for the kids who, you know, have the normative body and are on the team, there's very quickly these hierarchies of like, do you have a runner's body? Do you have a dancer's body? And if you don't, what are you doing to achieve that body? And I think it's also in sports really tied up in this culture of winning, of pushing yourself really hard, you know, the revering of coaches we have seen in all sorts of sports, particularly women's sports, is so toxic, leads to so much abuse of all kinds. And often in there, you know, I'm thinking of runners like Mary Kane. Um, I think there was a big story out of the National Women's Soccer League. Like these female athletes are pushed to extreme diets and also abused in many other ways, like the gymnasts, all of these stories we've seen. So it is a real sticking point for me of, okay, you want your kids to play sports because you think that will make them healthy, but you think exercise makes them healthy. Like, how are you reckoning with the fact that it's also an enormous risk factor for eating disorders and body dissatisfaction? And how, you know, and this is not to say don't put your kid on the soccer team. Like, I realize the amount of hate mail I will get as saying that in America in 2022. (laughs) Um, We love soccer in this country. Um, I will say my kids don't play it, and I'm relieved they have no interest. But... um, But, you know, it is true, whatever activity your kids are interested in, you need to both, you know, if they're little and you're thinking about putting them in the activity, I would be doing some research on talking to the coaches ahead of time. You know, how do you handle, um, you know, as the sport gets more serious, like what is your eating disorder prevention policy? Ooh, great question. If this is a gymnastics center and they don't have an eating disorder prevention policy, I wouldn't put my child in that program you know, without a lot of guardrails. So there is, again, some protection we're going to do around like trying to evaluate these programs. But as your kids get older, they're making their own choices. You know, it's really conversations you're going to have with them about, we know you love the sport. We know you really want to do this. You know, and then maybe it's either you don't have the body that's embraced by the sport and we need to talk about how we're going to support you because that might get hard. And what do you need from us to help you feel safe doing this? Or if they do have the body, you know, you're going to get a lot of praise for your body because this is the body type that's idealized by this sport. That's really problematic. We are going to keep you safe. Like, we aren't going to let you play this sport if you lose your period, you know, if you're not eating enough to grow. And what support do you need from us to help you advocate with coaches? You know, how do you want to set boundaries with your coach about how they can talk about your body? There's just lots of different Mm. Layers to this, and I'm, you know, I'm just throwing out some sort of general broad stroke stuff. It's again, it's going to be different for every kid, every activity, but I do think, yeah, this is where you're going to, it's going to show up, and thinking about how you want to navigate it and yeah. um, how you can help your kid navigate it and supporting them if they want to quit, I think is a huge shift we need to make as a culture. We have such a don't quit mindset around kids and sports. And if your kid's saying something doesn't feel safe in their body about this sport, like, let them quit midseason. I don't care what it means for the finals. <laughs> like, get them out of there. So, yeah. Oh, I just love everything you're saying. I don't think I quite thought about it in such a, through what feels like a very activist lens on my part as a caregiver, 
um, to both question the policies of the organization. Like my stepdaughter's in four different dance classes at mm-hmm. a studio and I would never have thought yeah, to talk to them about that. And I'm like, absolutely, we should. And talk to her as well because she's she lives in a very thin body. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that could change. We don't know. She's 14. So um, and then what I've def- I've definitely noticed this with my stepson and soccer as he's gotten more competitive. Mm-hmm. He there has been a direct oh, and it's heartbreaking. This has been a there's been a direct correlation with the amount of food he eats with the more um, focused he has gotten yeah. and more competitive he's gotten with soccer. And we've tried to talk to him about it. And this is where I think there's a challenge. It's challenging when parents are not aligned. We have, you know, obviously um a situation where there's not a relationship with their Mm -hmm. mom and there is no co-parenting um unfortunately so hard so we do what we can when we have the kids but it is it's really hard so we do talk a lot (laughs) i think they might be getting quite sick of us talking about different oppressions (laughs) but you know what though it is shifting because they do point it out you know they will do things like what your daughter did with harry potter the kids will say things like Oh, so we went to assembly and someone said this thing and isn't that anti-fat or isn't that racist? Like, so they're, they're starting to get it, which I'm so grateful for, but man, do I still feel that urge to just bubble up around them and just, of course, oh, it's so hard because yeah, I mean, you don't want your kids to be hurt by this stuff. That's the most painful thing, but yeah, but I think, yeah. And it just like creating, you know, and, and, and I think too, like for kids who are already into these activities, they love them so much, just creating opportunities for checking in, you know, how are you feeling about that? You know, how's your body feeling? How are you feeling about your body? Like, you know, have you noticed anyone commenting on bodies in a way that bugs you there? Like just, that's a good question. Like really neutral. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But just like checking in and making sure they know that you can hear this and that you, you know, want to like listen and hear this with them and we'll help them problem solve it. Yeah. If they want to, as opposed to like, well, I can't tell her that because she's going to make me quit. You know, like that's where you don't want it to go. Like um, if they love the activity or because I mean, because it's very complicated for a kid to quit a sport they love if they feel some push pull around that. And yeah, so yeah, it's tricky. Yeah. I'd love to do one more scenario because this is another one that I certainly hear a lot from adults. Um, And certainly it's true, I think, with kids, too. And that is pediatrician, medical situations. Holy, uh, what, oh, (laughs) what do we do, Virginia, in these situations? Um, So again, I think this is one where parents should do some upfront work. I mean, certainly if you are shopping for a new pediatrician, I would make a, you know, on your like list of criteria as well as like how fast do they schedule appointments and is it a 10 minute drive from my house, which are like the two things I want in a pediatrician. Um, you know, I would also ask around to like other families that use the doctor, like, how are they on weight? What have you heard about? You know, just like try to find out. And if you can find a weight inclusive pediatrician, I would drive an hour to that doctor. They're very few and far between, but if you find one, you know, for sure, try to work with them um, if it's possible for you. But um, you can also, in a first visit, you can write a letter you bring in ahead of time. You know, sometimes you can send an email ahead of time, bring a letter that you give when the nurse, you know, does the check-in process. You say, can you pass this to the doctor? And just let them know 
that you don't want body mass index discussed in front of your kids. If they have any concerns about growth, you'd like that to be a separate conversation, not in front of your kids. Um, That, I think, is a good... And again, we're talking about this, like, protection versus advocacy. I'm doing that for, like, younger kids, you know, where, like, they just don't need to hear it. Um, With teenagers, you may already be at a point where they're thinking about this and you would handle it slightly differently. You could ask your teenager, do you want to opt out of getting weighed, you know? It's tricky with pediatricians. Like, with adults, I often talk about the power of opting out, getting on the scale. It's not an option that's available to everybody um, because... Lots of folks, lots of fat folks are like, well, even if I don't get on the scale, they can see I'm fat, so they're still going to treat me badly, you know? So, like, there's that whole piece of it where it can be helpful and sometimes it can't, you know, it's not helpful. But if it's an option for you, not getting on the scale usually does change the direction of the conversation in a useful way. Um, With kids, though, you often do need to get them weighed if you're, like, figuring out car seats because that's weight-based. Or medication dosing with kids is more often weight-tied than it is with adults. But you probably don't need to get them weighed if you're bringing them in for an ear infection. Do you know what I mean? Like, there's probably, you could get them weighed less often, and you can ask that when they do get weighed that it's, you know, any discussion happen outside of their earshot. And then as kids get older, you know, the age I worry about the most is age 10. Mm. 10 is when I most often hear from people, from adults that I interview, 10 is when the pediatrician is most likely to say something anti-fat about how a kid's growing because it's really common for kids on the cusp of puberty to round out. Yes. And pediatricians freak out because they think that the kid's growing too fast and they're not willing to ride out the curves of like puberty growth, which is rapid growth and should involve some rounding out all around um, and is totally normal, whatever it looks like. But they, you know, that's this Mm -hmm. moment. So definitely if you know, if you're sort of aware that your kid's gotten bigger in the last year and you're like, oh, we might, I would think about setting that boundary if you can of like, we're not going to talk about weight. It doesn't always work. And this is why the other piece of it is how do we talk to our kids? Because you can set the boundary and the doctor might ignore it. Or they might find a sneaky way to bring it up. Like one time I was in a checkup and they were like, does she eat mostly beige foods? And I was like, I see what you're doing. (laughs) (laughs) They're learning how to ask around. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, I was like, yeah, I'm on to you. Um, So then the line that I really love and that I have used myself and that I think is a great one to use is we trust her body. We trust his body, their body. We're not worried about it. And, you know, that shuts down a lot. That's Um, a great line. We trust their body. We trust their body. We're not worried about this. We trust their body to grow the way it needs to grow. We're not worried about this. And then your kid, even if your kid hears the doctor raising the questions, they hear the parent or the caregiver in the room saying, we trust their body. And that matters more than what the doctor says. Because, you know, like the doctors, the kids, they see this doctor twice a year. They don't care, you know. So that's, I think, the thing to keep in mind is set boundaries where you can. But if you can't, find a way to reinforce. And then check in with your kid after. You know, how did you feel about what they said? You know, this is what I think about the way doctors talk about weight. You know, I think they talk about it too much. And you can then... So it's layering on that added education in an age-appropriate way, of course. Like, I haven't gone into BMI with my five-year-old yet, but, you know, like, my nine-year-old, like, we're getting there. We can start talking about that. So, yeah. Yeah. Oh, this is so helpful. It's so helpful. And I I feel like 
there's such a piece in this around trusting that kids can be aware of, present to these deeper conversations. You know, like, again, that impulse to protect is so strong, and yet we're actually not protecting them by not talking about it. And if they just see you get upset and they don't know why you got upset with the doctor for saying your their weight was too high, it's really easy for them to misconstrue your upsetness. And think it's, oh, because my weight is high. There's a problem. I'm the problem. Yeah, of course. Of yeah. course. Which is why we have to do our own work so that it we don't get triggered. Yes, yes. Yeah. Which is tough. It's all, I mean, that's, yeah, doctors are like the third rail of this in a lot of ways. I mean, it just brings up so much stuff. And, you know, parents and bigger bodies are getting judged by the doctor as well. Like you're not, you're navigating a lot there. So. Yeah. It's very true. It's very true. That's a hard thing. Every time I do go to like one of the soccer games or any of these events, I just think, oh gosh, like I can just, I feel, maybe I'm making it up, but I don't know. You know, I I feel the judgment as like the fat caregiver. Yeah. And. I think it's really real. Yeah. And then my job is to not let that impact how I show up and not any let any of that spill over into my relationship. Yep, exactly. With the kids and just show up as like an anti-fat activist. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> Keep that hat on. Oh, this is so useful. Thank you for taking us through those different arenas yeah, where this shows up and how we can think about it in ways that we can um, negotiate and navigate. Um. This book, is there something about this book that has it feeling really personal for you? I know you mentioned your daughter kind of shifted your general uh, beliefs away from super diet culture focused and kind of more into the, you know, anti-fat bias nature. But is there something about this book that really, like, what drove you to write it? What's feeling personal about it? You know, it's interesting. I mean, I should... Disclose, like at the moment, both my daughters are in thin bodies. Um, my younger daughter was in a bigger body. It, like she's on the higher end of the growth chart, but she, you would not identify her as fat at this point. But I think I am very aware of my own journey from like thin kid to fat adult. And so I'm very aware of not wanting to make assumptions about what their bodies will be in the mm. future, not wanting them to feel like fatness is like a failure or a thing to avoid at all costs, which is certainly how I grew up thinking about it. Um, so there is that personal motivation of, you know, just being so aware of how, diff- you know, on a personal level, knowing the way I struggled with having to work through the idea that my body could change and my worth didn't change. Mm. And, you know, understanding that I had thinness tied up with like professional success and, you know, relationships and like all these things that has nothing to do with, you know, it has nothing to do with me being a mom. You don't need to be a thin mom. I don't, it has nothing to do with being a writer. You don't need to be a thin writer. What? Like, what is that? It's not a thing. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, but like you sort of, you know, because our culture equates thinness with all good things, we have all this work to do to untangle that. And so I think that's where it's personal for me is, you know, yeah, my own experience, which is not very much in the book, I should say. Like, there's a little bit here and there, but my first book had a lot about my personal stuff and my daughter, and I kind of feel like my kids deserve a free pass at this point. I will write about them so much anymore. Um, but that is the personal element. But the other thing of it is, like— you know, now that I'm in this community, the burnt toast community, the larger fat activism community, 
there are so many fat people I love that I see being harmed. Like there's so, like every reader who emails me, it's personal, you know? Like I'm fighting for that kid now and I'm fighting for that person who sent a DM on Instagram and, you know, or like colleagues who are doing this work in the space like yourself. Like it's just, it's personal because it's personal because there's so many people involved. And I think that's a big part of it where I just felt like this was a, piece of the conversation. This is a way I can contribute. Um, you know, I can take all the research and this reporting, I can turn this into something useful for people. And this is, you know, maybe I can't get schools to stop weighing kids, but I can, you know, contribute with giving parents these tools. So yeah, that's what I'm hoping to do. Absolutely. I think you're totally doing it. <laughs> you are. That's so great. And I I I love this because there, I, I imagine you, I'm going to assume you feel something similar where, man, there are days, weeks, months where I just think we as a human race, <laughs> apocalypse is coming and the signs are all there. We are going down. It is a dumpster fire. And let me point to all the examples. And then I think, well, then, well, I have a couple options. I can just give up mm -hmm. or I can keep my side of the street clean mm -hmm. in the best way that I can. And you know, I started the podcast based in response to that rage. So yeah. I was like, well, what I what I can do, I can talk to people and I can put it out into the yes. world. Yes. And you can write and research and you can put it out into the world and also talk to people. And I feel like there's a hope in that. Yeah. You know, there has to be. There that has to count for something. Um, and I'm so grateful that you're doing it. Um and I wanted you posted something. I forget where I saw it, but it was so it was something I'd never thought about before, which is that as someone with a book coming out, pre-orders are so important. So I know that pre-ordering a book is very mm -hmm. important because then that means the publisher will be like, oh, yay, people want to read this book. They'll print more. It's, it's all good for the author. But your take was, yes, and pre-ordering a book is fat justice and connected to fat politics and mm -hmm. advocacy. This blew my mind. Please say more about that. Yes. And I want to be clear, like, this sounds so self-promotional and not that I have a huge problem with self-promotion, but, you know, I'm not saying like pre-ordering my book is your activism. It can be. I would love for you to pre-order my book. But in the bigger picture sense, the point I wanted to make is that we haven't had a fat justice book on the New York Times bestseller list yet. We haven't had, you know, even Aubrey Gordon, who is our, is our queen, like her book was not a not a national bestseller. It did very well, obviously. It's amazing. And her second book's going to do very well. And maybe that's the one that gets there. I really hope it does. But we haven't had... Not even Roxanne Gay Hunger? Yeah, okay. Hunger, yes. But... Although it's not... It, there's some stuff. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, and Roxanne Gay is brilliant and amazing. And her, yes, she is probably the best-selling fat author in living today and therefore probably ever um, because it's not like there were a lot <laughs> historically. Um, but we haven't gotten these conversations all the way into the mainstream is the bigger point. Like, these are still, you know, the reason... I'm getting emails now about like, what do I do at Thanksgiving dinner when my uncle makes a fat phobic comment? Is because like, we haven't gotten to the uncles, you know? We haven't gotten to the we coaches. We haven't gotten to the uncles. We haven't. It's so true. It's and so I, true. 
Oh, God, the uncles and the aunties. Yeah, we haven't gotten to them. We haven't gotten this on the Today Show. You know, like, this hasn't gone mainstream yet, but it could. And I think we're close. And I think these books doing well is a way we do that. And, you know, the other thing I'll say about this is, like, a few years ago, I wrote a piece for Scientific American about weight-inclusive healthcare and, like, what if doctors stopped weighing patients? And for Scientific American to do that story, that is, like, the whitest, malest, stodgiest, you know, science. Like, it's very old school. It's a great magazine, but, you know, its reputation is, like, it is institution. It is tradition. It is, you know, it is not provocative, new, wacky ideas. Um, It is not fringe. And so the fact that they did that story in a big way and did it well and let me write it the way I wanted to write it and, you know, we had the science, we had the fact-checking, it was done well, people would then get mad at me because it was paywalled. And they would be like, I have to pay $6 to read this. And I was like, okay, I get that $6 is not within reach of everyone and that's why libraries exist. And getting these things out of your libraries also supports writers and journalism. But if you want anti-fat journalism to happen in a mainstream way, spend the $6 because this is what tells the editors that these stories matter and that they should happen again. You know, get the New York Times subscription for when they do these stories and like, and pre-order the books because this pre-orders are essential to sales of books like in the entire future of the book. And this is how we get that work to matter and to get and to get a bigger audience. So yeah, is it, you know, the most important form of activism? Maybe not. But is it something that's very accessible to a lot of people? Yeah. I mean, a $20 book is within reach for lots of folks. And if it's not within reach for you, asking your librarians to order it is also super, super, super helpful. Librarians do a lot to support books. So yeah, it's a way, it's a way to help. Yeah, absolutely. And as a former librarian, I will vouch for the fact that you can request your library to buy you certain books and they keep lists and they do it. And yeah, and it also shows them what other topic, what topics need to be bought more of. And again, that just contributes to that cycle of, oh, lots of people are wanting to read about this. Okay, let's make sure we order more. Okay, great. Let's make sure we put more, print more. And then also let's make sure we accept more manuscripts mm-hmm. from people who are writing about this. Because the other thing I've heard, Virginia, I don't know if you came across this, but I have, because part of the work I do is as a creative writing coach, I know that there are people who are writing about marginalized bodies and what, especially fatness and what they're hearing back is, quote unquote, we've already got enough of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, and I just want to scream. Did you have to fight at all for this book? I did not. And I will own all of the privilege that goes into that. I mean, I'm a career journalist. I've been in New York City publishing for a long time. So I had connections and, you know, like a way in that's, I had a door open to me that's not open to most people. And I fully own the privilege of that. Um, But I have absolutely heard the same thing. It makes me nauseous to think that my book being out there might lead editors to be like, we don't need another one. Like, we need so many more. So many more. We need so yeah. many more. Yeah. There's no end to it. And I think we see the same thing happening in terms of Black authors. Um, you know, like, oh, well, there's like one big Black author on the list for spring. So we're set on Black authors. Like, what? Absolutely not. It's atrocious. And I think publishing is starting to understand that. But this is where sales really matter because the, The flip side of that is, you know, 
if you are writing a book, like there was a period where if you were writing a YA novel about vampires, there was no such thing as enough of those, right? Because <laughs> Twilight was selling so crazily, like there was an endless well of vampire YA novels they would publish because they wanted them all to be bestsellers. Publishing also, like it, it's, it, all of its success hinges on replicating its success. When something is selling well, they want more of it. So if Aubrey's book sells really well, if my book sells really well, they will want more of them. They will not say, oh, we have not enough. They'll say, oh, it's a market. And that's the thing. We haven't created the market yet. Oh, let's create the market. Everyone listening, let's create the market. Oh, beautiful. Thank you for, Jennifer, just sharing that. That is a way to be an ally. That is a way to be an activist. It's so important. I'm so glad you raised that. Um, that it does, that pre-orders, something that's seemingly innocuous actually has this huge ripple effect that can yeah. lead to more of this important work in the world. Well, I appreciate you asking about it because, yeah, it is, feels like a sort of inside baseball topic, but it is important. Yeah. Well, I want people to know. I think it's so important because I think a lot of people listening are readers and they, I don't think people would be listening to this podcast if they were not interested in this work. So let's all help it get out there in a bigger way. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Um, so Virginia, how do you stay connected to joy? How do you choose joy? Talk to us about your fat joy. Oh, I love this question. Um, I have a couple different ones. Like, do you want like one thing or should I? Oh no, tell us a few. Give us all the joy, all the joy. I there's a poem where the last line is something like, I'm going to butcher it, and I forget who wrote it. It's one of the poems that I love that I read for one of the podcasts, um, which is that joy is not a crumb. So um, yeah, joy is not a, not a crumb. Yeah, absolutely. Well, on the joy is not a crumb, a big one is my girls and I really love baking brownies. We bake brownies um, like almost every week, I would say. Like it's a pretty regular, like the Ghirardelli, I'm mispronouncing that, Ghirardelli Double chocolate brownie mix is like a staple, always in my house. I will bake them on a whim, like, you know, all the time because it's like so easy. And then we have brownies and it makes everyone happy. And um, they bring me so much joy because it's, you know, it's definitely one of those foods that in a, you know, an earlier decade, I didn't let myself fully enjoy the way I wanted to. And now I can always have them and they're delicious. Um, and racing my daughter for the middle ones. They are our favorites. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I like the edges. I like the well, You the and crunchy. I would get along well then. <gasps> you need the inside, I need the outside. Perfect. I, love it. I need more. Everyone in my house is an inside brownie person. It's a little bit of a, I need to like get some kind of pan that doesn't make edges. <laughs> I was just thinking, how would that be? I'm curious. Yeah. It's a, that's a physics experiment. <laughs> yes. So center of the pan brownies is a big joy of mine. Um, also, um, a recent major joy of mine has been feminist romance novels. Oh, please say more. Please list some authors. Yes. Jasmine Guillory um, is a Black author, and most of her protagonists are Black women in fat bodies having amazing sex. Um, so good. Yes. I'm going to include some links. Okay. Yes. Jasmine Guillory. Jasmine Guillory is one. Um, Talia Hibbert is the other one whose um, heroines are black and fat and having amazing sex. And then Helen Hong, her characters are Asian. They tend to not be in fat bodies, but they are mostly neurodivergent. And so it's like romance um, and neurodivergency and like really beautifully written stories and very fun. Um, yeah, so that has been like a something I just got into this year and brings me a ton of joy. 
Um, they're just so satisfying to read. And yeah, and making time to read in general is really, and read novels. I have to read a lot of nonfiction for my work. And so for many years, I wasn't reading a lot of fiction. And I realized like how much happier I am when I make time for fiction. So yeah. Oh, love that. Brownies and feminist romances. Mm -hmm. Oh my God, those are on my list, my to-do <laughs> list. Um, beautiful. Thank you. Um, Virginia, this has been such a joy. I'm so glad to get to know you yes. and meet you. I've been having a lot of fangirl moments throughout this <laughs> whole conversation. I feel really honored that you're here and I'm so thrilled that you're in the world doing this work. So thank oh, you. Thank you. Well, same. I mean... I really appreciate your work, and yeah, I'm just grateful for this conversation. Before we go, I'd like to read a poem, because poetry can reach our hearts in a different way. Poems can have us feel in a different way, and that's what this podcast is all about. Expanding our hearts, deepening our empathy, and inviting in joy. So each week, you get a new poem. Today's poem was chosen for my conversation with Virginia Soul Smith. Um, Virginia is such a big picture thinker and at the same time can bring us right into the complexities and intricacies of parenting in a world filled with anti-fat bias. So this poem called Butter by Connie Wanick feels like the right choice to me for its expansive nature and also the intimate details that it shares. So here it is. Butter, like love, seems common enough, yet has many imitators. I held a brick of it, heavy and cool, and glimpsed what seemed like skin beneath a corner of its wrap. The décolletage revealed a most attractive fat, and most refined. Not milk, not cream, not even creme de la creme. It was a delicacy which assured me that bliss follows agitation, that even pasture daisies through the alchemy of four stomachs may grace a king's table. We have a yellow bowl near the toaster where summer's butter grows soft and sentimental. We love it better for its weeping, its nostalgia for buckets and churns and deep stone wells, for the press of a wooden butter mold shaped like a swollen heart. Thank you for joining me today. My hope is that you're feeling a little less alone and a little more seen. So until the next episode, you can find me on Instagram at fatjoy.life, on YouTube at youtube.com slash at fatjoy, and on Patreon at patreon.com slash fatjoy. Please do check out the show notes for how you can connect with my amazing guest and for the links to the poem. All right, lovely. I am sending you off with my best wishes for an abundantly fat joy day, and I look forward to talking to you again soon. Bye-bye.